So a real challenge for me this week, both in this process piece and uh, in our seminar, is to figure out a way to talk about a book with uh, as much historical significance and conceptual content as Franz Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks, uh, and talk about it in, in just well, you know this session uh, and this week. It's published in... Uh, 1952 when Fanon was only 27 years old it's a really phenomenal work for me in a couple of ways first the way it transforms the immediate past of Caribbean theory well francophone Caribbean theory and all of its transatlantic connections but also the way it transforms a relationship to European thought in particular Jean-Paul Sartre but uh, we could add to that uh, Hegel so I want to say just uh, a little bit about it in this, this uh, piece. And of course, uh, there's so much more to be elaborated, but these are some of the themes that really uh, stand out for me. The theme of the book is, uh, I think, properly framed by this notion of sociogeny. And sociogeny is just what the word suggests, right? A sense of genesis out of the sociological or the social. What this means in this context is that it is, uh, it is uh, impossible to talk about black subjectivity outside of its social genesis, that there is no sort of pure human, right, that is then modified by uh, political and cultural structures. Rather, for Fanon, subjectivities, both white and black subjectivities, emerge out of a social situation. They're generated by, created by, and shaped by the social milieu in which they arise. That is part of what the introduction is trying to demonstrate, and I think demonstrates so well. Namely, that the destiny in an anti-black world or a colonial world, he's, you know, he's talking about a colonial, we might update that vocabulary a little bit by calling it anti-black, but a colonial world where the destiny of subjects is to be white. This is true of uh, white subjects as well as black subjects. For white subjects, of course, this is uh, the meaning of what we would now call white supremacy. This is the only category, uh, social category of human who can fulfill their destiny, right, or their, their fate in an anti-black world are white people. But black people are also structured by this destiny of whiteness. That destiny of whiteness looms uh, as the horizon in which black subjectivity arises and lives and breathes and moves in important ways because it's structured from the outset by an absolute structural impossibility. It is a structural impossibility because black subjects can never attain that uh, destiny of whiteness and therefore are always less than uh, or always at a sort of uh, either proximate distance or infinite distance, I think, depending on, on Fanon's rhetorical mood in his work. But either way, this destiny of whiteness is, seals the fate of alienation in an anti-black or colonial world. And one of the things that keeps that in place, of course, is what he calls the epidermal scheme. And this is his, uh, Fanon's uh, conception of race, that for Fanon, uh, the body itself, right, the skin itself, 
is the the surface right, of the body, but also the depth of subjectivity in a sociogenic anti-black world. So the color of skin then determines one's relationship to everything, right? to being itself, to what it means to be, to what kind of humans we are and what kinds of possibilities lay before us. When he talks about language in the first chapter, which to, to my mind is, is his most provocative and important chapter in Black Skin, White Masks, and I would say probably uh, across his in, entire career, that notion of language is important because he says at a couple of places, at the, uh, I think it's at the very uh, end of the first page of chapter one onto the second page, where he says, you know, to speak a language is to to adopt a civilization and a culture. And he repeats that later on in the, the chapter. And when he says that, that's to be understood in the register of sociogeny and this destiny of whiteness. That what that means is that no matter how the black person speaks, he always says the black man, uh, but um, he means for the most part um, black people. But for black people to speak, there are three basic possibilities. One is to try to perfect the diction of French, white French speakers. And so there he talks in that chapter and elsewhere about, you know, what it meant, what it means for uh, Afro-Caribbeans to spend time in Paris and to learn how to imitate Parisian French which is this perfection of diction that makes you sound like a white person, perhaps, or get approximately to sound like a white person. But again, the epidermal scheme limits that question of diction, right? It limits it in the sense that no matter how perfectly one forms one's, uh, one's speaking, right? No matter how well one mimics white French speaking, one is still always black. And therefore, that destiny of whiteness, that unachievable, means that in the case of, of language, that the destiny is alienation, right? To adopt a culture and a civilization that's not your own, in which you cannot be the fullness of your personhood. And therefore, in relation to language, which is not merely a tool, it's the condition of our thinking, it's the condition of our expressive life and our relation to the world, right? Language for him is has this depth dimension. That's why he connects it to culture and, and, and civilization and world. You're adopting the world of the language, in this case, the white world of France. What that means in an anti-black world is inevitable alienation. So that's one possibility is the perfection of diction. The other is the non-perfection of diction. And that non-perfection of diction just um, confirms your own inferiority, right? That you me are measured by the colonial language. And in that measurement by the colonial language, you just accept that you come up short and you speak your vernacular uh, accented French. And that, again, confirms what the perfection of diction tries to deny, which is the place of black people, black bodies, and black voices in an anti-black world. The third possibility is to um, adopt uh, pidgin and creole languages. Uh, those are different languages. Pidgin is a, 
is an, an adapted version of, of a colonial language that's tweaked to um, make it uh, uh, a derivative form, right? But still essentially related to France, or French, uh, French in France. And that intensely accented, right, or clipped or blended approach to language gives it a local sound. But for Fanon, that again just confirms the inferiority because a pigeon is simply a derivative language in relation to French. And so when you derive in your derivative of, that builds in a measure of less than. He also mentions Creole, and Creole is a more complicated question than he gives it credit. Uh, in this particular text. Although I will say that what Fanon says about Creole is what people thought about Creole and still to this day often think about Creole languages in the Caribbean, which is that they are somehow uh, degenerate uh, every day, but not the place of serious identity formation, serious scholarship, expressive culture, and the like. So for him, again, Creole is a mixture of all those things that come from an anti-black world. So to find oneself in Creole, to perfect Creole, to engage Creole, to be a Creole speaker, to think of expressive life, right, in the arts, in, in, in music, in poetry, in literature, to seek expression in, in Creole is simply to confirm again for Fanon your place in the world as someone who doesn't have their own language and can only cobble together with the bits and pieces of what lays about a language that you call your own, but it's not genuinely your own. Fanon never thinks his way out of this, and for good reason. Right. He never thinks his way out of this because he is at this point in his, his in the book and certainly I think across his career, a deeply pessimistic thinker. He doesn't have a, 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 any robust sense of, of hope that is rooted in the way that the world is, the way the world uh, as we know it exists. There are no paths out. There are no resources there for liberation. There are no resources there for a fully realized subjectivity. Because again, what the relationship to language tells us, whether it's, it's accepting our accented uh, French, uh, perfecting diction, or embracing Creole and Pigeon, all of those find themselves, for Fanon, all of them find themselves in relation to the colonial language and to, to the colonial world. And that relation always designates black subjectivity as inferior and less than. Not thinking his way out of that is for me not actually a criticism of Fanon. I think, you know, sometimes when, when I discuss this with, with classes or with other people, they say, well, why doesn't he give us a way out? Well, I think wanting a way out is in some ways to misunderstand the nature of critical theory, which is to examine the conditions for the possibility of our lives. And in this case, it's the condition for the possibility of, of life in an anti-black world and life in a colony. And those conditions for the possibility of life are to be socially dead, to have no rooted place, to be nomadic and wandering and uh, without a sense of, of place. In that way, I think that Fanon, I think Fanon's um, 
conception of language and his pessimism works as a deep criticism of the surrealist and negritude movements that preceded him. Because I think what he's, what he's trying to say to those movements is you haven't thought deeply enough about the nature of language and its relationship to how we live and breathe and think in a colonial world. And when you think that, take that seriously. Take it on as, as a theoretical problem and an existential problem because it's who and what we are. All of a sudden, those, those desires of negritude, those desires of surrealism start to look like they are locked into the same kind of fate of all colonial subjects, which is to, in the end, be a derivative form of the colonizer. So how we get outside that is really something that waits until his last work, which is uh, published uh, just nine years later, The Wretched of the Earth. Although in a minute, I'll say uh, some things about recognition that link to that work and start to see, get us to see how Fanon imagines breaking out of this seemingly closed system of nihilism and pessimism. I also find it uh, very interesting, his reflections, and this is his criticism of Sartre, um, but also his engagement with Sartre, is uh, the contrast of anti-black racism with anti-Semitism. He draws a lot on Jean-Paul Sartre's Anti-Semite and Jew, which was uh, an early work of Sartre's that tried to uncover the essential structure of racism, which for him had to do with the way that the, the racist gaze, in the, in the case of, of Sartre's book, the anti-Semitic gaze, fixes the Jew in such a way that the Jew can never not be what the anti-Semite says about the Jew. Right. Um, you know, Sartre's examples are, you know, if if the anti-Semite, you know, the gaze of the anti-Semite, you know, determines that, you know, part of what's dangerous about the Jew is that the Jew is good with money. Right. Then if you're Jewish and you are responsible with your finances, you end up confirming the stereotype. Um, and there are all sorts of versions of this, right, where where Sartre is is delineating this way that that racism sets a trap of inevitability for the racialized subject, whether that's the Jew or in the case of Fanon, black people, right? That it lays a trap because no matter what one does, one is stuck inside that gaze and only can confirm the worst, right? Only confirm what the racist says uh, about them. And so, for Fanon, there's a, a, a difference, though, he wants to really underscore, which uh, I think is important, and it may be more of a sort of textual curiosity, um, but I think it, it illuminates something really important, which is he makes a contrast where he says, you know, for, for Sartre, the, the Jew is overdetermined by the anti-Semite. That is, that the anti-Semite thinks that the Jew is too powerful. Right, too, too, um, too uh, smart, too crafty, uh, you know, too uh, dangerous in that way because they wield this intense power over, you know, the Gentile over Christians, and so the Jew is a threat that way by being too much. But anti-black racism works in an inverted way, where black, uh, the black subject is underdetermined, right, understood as weak and incapacitated 
right? Or what he calls early on in the book, and this is an immensely important phrase, the uh, uh, relegation to the zone of non-being. Relegation to the zone of non-being is this place of literally not belonging at all in the world to be uh, less than nothing. Right, not nothing that is, you know, a part of being or diminishment of being, but literally outside being. And so that zone of non-being, you know, to think of blackness in that context, is to invert the structure of anti-Semitism, right? Because the experience of anti-blackness is always being less than or completely outside the world. Or <coughs> what other African American thinkers, in particular uh, Richard Wright and of course Ralph Ellison have discussed in terms of invisibility, right? The Jew is hyper-visible, black person is, is uh, hyper-invisible. This is Fanon's sort of phenomenology of, of the, the difference between anti-Semitism and anti-blackness. But both share the structure of the white European gaze structuring their very being from the outside but also from the inside because there's nothing that can be done that doesn't confirm that. Now, how do we start to imagine uh, breaking out of this anti-black structure? I think it's difficult to, to ask that, answer that question in part because of Fanon's own vision. That is, Fanon is not someone who sets up an alternative world in the future that he wants us to work toward. He's not, he doesn't draw up some sort of literary utopia that then he wants to set out the steps to get there. He also, unlike negritude, or at least his caricature of negritude, does not have an ideal of going back to what was before colonialism. Right? He's not a pre-colonial thinker at all. Because for him, ultimately, that's just a fantasy. Right? He says that the, the, um, in a critique of negritude at the end of an essay uh, titled West Indians and Africans, fantastic essay, he says that uh, he calls uh, negritude the great black mirage, right? It's like a mirage in the desert where you see, uh, you see what you want to see, but it's not actually there. And that for Fanon is like this inability of certainly the negritude movement and maybe also uh, Menil and Suzanne Césaire when we start to talk about surrealism. I, I think it's a, he doesn't take the surrealists as seriously, so we, we have to fill in some blanks. But I wonder sometimes if he's also not talking about surrealists, that they have too much hope or too much faith in this notion that there is something there to retrieve, a relationship to landscape, a relationship to civilization and ancestry. So Fanon in that way is really caught between two times, right? He's unwilling to forge a vision of the future that then we could lay steps to fulfill but he also refuses this vision of the past, which would retrieve it and refresh it and reform it for the present and future. So he's instead stuck in some ways at the precipice of the present. And I say precipice because he wants his thought to press us up to that edge where the world as he describes it becomes both thinkable because we can understand its infrastructure, but also unlivable because there's nothing in this world uh, that sustains black life, right? And at certain points, he will, he will uh, refer to black colonized subjects as zombies, right? We could call that in a more contemporary vocabulary, social death, 
right, as walking around technically alive but in functionally dead. So what is that, what tips that us over that edge of that precipice where we're able to move from, from a, a pessimistic or nihilistic um, uh, diagnosis and think about like what, you know, where does this leave us? Where does this lead us? And I think when he talks in the, the, the final chapter, the conclusion is it's separate uh, a bit of, of, of documentation. But when he talks about comparison in that last chapter, I think it's really interesting the way he, instead of emphasizing through Adler and Hegel, this notion of recognition, where recognition, whether it's dialectical in Hegel's sense or dialectical in Adlerian psychology, in the sense of Adlerian psychology, either way, recognition is that moment of letting whiteness continue to be the measure of all things. But in letting wet whiteness be the measure of all things, if we seek recognition there, we never contest whiteness and therefore we never take its power away. It instead reifies and I think calcifies colonialism if we seek recognition, right, from the colonizer. That seek recognition would be see that I am the same as you rather than what Fanon wants to do is push to say your, to the colonizer, your idea of the human excludes me. I don't want to be included in your idea of the human. I want to break us free of this notion of the human, period, and seek something new. So if you look at The, at the Wretched of the Earth, if you haven't read it, um, the very final uh, bit, just last handful of pages, is all on this notion of a new humanism. Uh, it draws, I think, rhetorically on what M.A. Césaire called in Discourse on Colonialism, uh, measure uh, uh, humanism made to the measure of the world. And Fanon very much wants that, wants something at least like that, if not that exactly. But in order to get to that notion of the new, right, we have to break free of this, this, this compulsion uh, towards recognition. Because again, recognition leaves the white gaze and the white generated notion of the human or humanism to stay in place. So we can't actually move outside it, right? And only seek recognition inside it. That basically is trying to make colonialism include everybody rather than breaking fully free from it. And when he talks about Hegel, uh, I think it's important that he draws a distinction. I mean, it's very dense and very quick. And so this is my, my interpretation of this movement in, in Fanon's uh, chapter, final chapter, which is that on the one hand, he rejects Hegel's notion of recognition, but he embraces what Hegel also said about recognition, which is that it only comes through struggle. It only comes through acts of violence, right? And confrontation and negation. The problem with Hegel is he doesn't understand, or at least on, on Fanon's uh, idea of, uh, of, or vision of, or reading of Hegel's text, that Hegel uh, doesn't take that, the transformative function of that violence seriously enough. But rather, uh, but if he did, you know, and rather we were to think about this confrontation of, you know, seeking recognition, because when you're unrecognized, you have to push to be recognized. You have to jolt the one who doesn't recognize you into awareness of your very presence. 
what Hegel doesn't understand that Fanon pushes forward with in the last chapter and all the way through uh, The Wretched of the Earth is this idea that that confrontation is so violent that it actually kills the idea of comparison or at least has the capacity to kill, to eliminate, to eradicate the very idea of measure and comparison. And when you break that, when you say not, I want to be recognized in your conception of the human, but I want to be recognized, but not on your conditions and not on mine. It's an act of destructive violence that is total. And the effect of this total destruction of identity, right? Total destruction of humanism, total destruction of the structure of recognition. What all that does is, is change our relationship to time where I'm no longer hearkening to the past or imagining another future in which the colonizer's humanism is more expansive and includes me. And instead, there's a break of time. Literally, time breaks apart where the present um, and the past fall away. And we're faced with this emptiness of the future in which then we can build a different kind of world. And that idea of building a different kind of world for Fanon doesn't work from the remnants of the past, whether that's the civilizational past of Africa, the, the colonial fragments in the colonized world, or some other such thing. Rather, there has to be this total break in order to genuinely build a new world. Otherwise, that, that new world would really be composed of uh, largely, if not exclusively, uh, the old world. So when we think about that break and that sense of the new, I think we can understand the rhetoric of the conclusion. And the conclusion is, for me, a wild and completely fascinating piece. It has all these things like, I'm not a slave to history. I'm not the history of my people. I don't seek reparations. I don't seek a redemption of the past. And all he wants is a break. But in thinking about that break, again, and this is the last th thing that I'll say here, when he wants to eschew the past, make that break from the past and the present, again, it's not for the sake of something in the future that he already sees. That's why when he concludes the book with this, uh, what he says, when he says, my final prayer, oh, my body, always make me a man who questions always make me a man who questions. He concludes in the interrogative, not with a question, but with the, the, the exhortation, the demand, the plea, the prayer, to be someone who questions, who's capable of raising the question of what it means to exist in a world after colonialism, to be able to raise that question for the first time without relation to the present or the past. That's why all of that conclusion is so dedicated to we are not our history, we are not our past, and we don't seek to negotiate new ways of relating to it. But rather, all he wants out of that moment of recognition, that, that, that violent confrontation that he sees in Hegel but sees it moving us in a different direction, what he wants is simply to open himself and the colonized broadly, and even the colonizer, but he's really addressing the colonized, to, to move humanity into that space of the interrogative 
where instead of already knowing the answer, we can ask the question for the first time. What does it mean to be? What does it mean to know? What does it mean to exist in this world without anti-blackness, without colonialism, and without the kinds of measures, comparisons, and conditions of recognition that that has brought with it for centuries? Centuries that have always set the destiny of black people, always set the destiny of colonized people as inexorable alienation. <laughs>